0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, thank you so much for being here as always. And Seeking Integrity has brought us this, this uh, show. I'm so glad about that. As you know, I often am fascinated and engaged with the people I talk to because they're so much smarter than me and they know so much more than I do. And I think that's what brings us all together is this learning process. And I'm gonna read Dr. Higgins' uh, bio, but I first wanna say to you that the reason she's here in many ways is because a lot of us don't understand the neurobiology, the part of addiction that involves the brain because we think oh well if they didn't want to do that they wouldn't do it or or addicts can just stop whenever they want to and i think if you understand or begin to understand the part that belongs to the brain it becomes less stigmatizing and less of a challenge for people to understand so i am so grateful to have dr higgins here let me read a little bit about her dr higgins is founder and ceo of wired for addiction which is both a research and a clinical program dr higgins is a recognized international expert in the epidemiology of addiction, as a dual diplomate of the American College of Addictionology and Compulsive Disorders, and diplomate of the American Board of Disability and Analysts specializing in pain management, Dr. Higgins has had the honor of of advising the U.S. Surgeon General, producing and hosting a Gracie Award-winning nationally syndicated health and wellness radio program, and... Serving as a 1996 Olympic team doctor and Olympic Olympic torchbearer, which I have to say, Dr. Higgins, I don't hear every day about clinicians carrying. We carry a torch, but not necessarily the real one. With 35 years of clinical practice, Dr. Higgins has designated over 16 years to research and development in the science of addiction recovery. In 2022, she was a speaker at um, TEDx, a panelist for the International Society of Substance Use Professionals. Um, And she has spoken and been involved in gambling conferences, uh, intimacy and addiction disorders programs, and she is a 2021 nominee for Modern Healthcare's Top 25 Innovators in Healthcare. Dr. Higgins finds herself at the nexus of epigenetics, neuroscience, and addiction. And those are some fancy words, which I know you're going to explain to us, um, because you really are at the, the point where we can come bring all these pieces together. So welcome, Dr. Higgins.
1: Thank you, Dr. Weiss. My pleasure.
0: We were talking about the brain, and we were talking about how so many people are challenged to understand addiction because they think, well, if you don't want to do it, you should stop, or if that's a problem, why do you keep doing it? And I think especially in the addictions that are not substance-driven, so gambling, gaming, spending, sexual behavior, can you help explain how those things can be an addiction?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, you know, the we're until we figure out what drives us to the behavior, we're just kind of running around in circles. So when we talk about addiction, we talk about self medicating for a diagnosed condition, an undiagnosed condition, or a trauma, and that self medicating works until it doesn't work, and then that becomes our next problem. So what is the underlying issue? to that process addiction, just like any of the other addictions. And and that's kind of the the stepping stone of figuring that part out to then move forward and say, all right, well let's get that manageable and a work in progress for for most people, a lifetime, but we we continue to make strides in getting to live that life that we're looking to live by figuring it out.
0: One of the things that I say to clients in a very simplistic way is the addiction is the tip of the iceberg. It's the part that everybody sees. And I, I think what you're saying is um, that what we're really beginning to uncover is all the parts underneath and how they affect the brain that lead us to this, this kind of problematic behavior. But it does work. It does function. It does meet the need for a period of time until it becomes its own problem. But then, what brings people in is the addiction. But what you're saying is, there's most often things underneath that have not been seen and not been looked at.
1: Absolutely, there's a crossover. It's not a separate mental health and an addiction. It's all, it's all under the same umbrella. Um, and and that stigma is just people really not understanding that this is actually a mental health disease. And no one, no one sets out to ruin their life. And have all of these other reactions from society and the people that they love. In, 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 no one would do that to say, let me just go make my life harder. We all strive to make our life easier. And it's that mental health component that is underneath everything.
0: So when you talk about mental health, I think of different things. I think of early relationships growing up. I think of how my brain is primed. Let's say I have a bipolar mother or depressed, history of depression in my family. And how do you put these pieces together? Because sure. it sounds like there's multiple issues lying underneath. Some person may have one, some person may have all. How, how do you, does sure. it have the same effect in the brain regardless
1: of? Well. Our environment is obviously going to have a big effect on us, so is our physiology. So, we're born with our DNA. Here's your cards, play them out. What we now know with um, epigenetics is that we can change the expression of those genes. Those genes are still the genes that you were born with, but the expression of them can change, and that's so powerful for people to understand in the field of epigenetics. To me, that's one of the most exciting parts of science, because we can really make changes in someone's life by understanding how this works.
0: And what do you mean by, I mean, I know we have genes and I know they're sort of inherited and I know that uh, there's pieces of my DNA, my history that are going to play out biologically in me, but what is that? I don't understand epigenetics. Isn't it true that who I am and what my DNA says I'm going to be and the, is just who I'm going to be? So, what do you mean?
1: So we see someone who's, say, 30 years old, and all of a sudden they have some kind of problem, they have an addiction, and, and their family saying, I don't understand, I didn't see this for 30 years. This is a completely different person. It's right, that was always there within their DNA. But the stressors of life, the environment of life, hadn't turned on those genes for us now to see the expression of them.
0: So the way I think we look at it in my work is that there are people who have the propensity for addiction. That right. There's the possibility. But when you grow up, and I'll use myself as an example, in an extremely pr- troubling environment where I had you know, a mentally, a mentally ill parent and an absent parent, that the stress of that, the anxiety of that, and the neurochemistry that my brain releases as a three-year-old trying to figure all that out, right. that that shifts the way that my genes, in other words, I might have been a depressed person, now I'm more likely to be a depressed person. Correct. Uh, can you say a little bit more about epigenetics? Cause, Boy, that's a big word. <laughs> sure.
1: So um, it, the epigenetic part of it is really the expression of what our genes are. So if they are not turned on, they're still there. But if they're not turned on, we're not seeing the what, what we call aberrant behavior. Aberrant behavior, things like risk taking, like impulse control, like addiction, like anxiety, depression, those things don't show up in our life because nothing turned those genes on. So in in conversely, we figure these things out. We then say, what lifestyle, what other parts can we employ in our life to say, how do I manage this the best that I can? It's there. But how do I manage it the best that I can? For some people, let's say cancer's in their family. This is this is what you've got. For other people, it's cardiac disease. This is what you've got. For someone with addiction or mental health, this is what you've got. So if you can understand this and and understand the theory behind how it all works, to me that's really empowering to an individual because it lets them say, I can control parts of my life by understanding what's going on. Okay, I still have to play it out, but if I understand what's in there, what's my choice going to be? What, how can I better serve myself?
0: It's interesting because I think in metaphors sometimes, and I'm thinking about music playing with a volume button and that for some people, the volume never gets turned on. You know, they don't ever listen. And for other folks, they hear a bit of a tune. And for other folks, it's so loud that they can't hear anything else. And that, what I hear you saying is the degree to which that volume will turn up and down has to do with the environment around them and how the brain experiences that, and then the reactions to that.
1: I love that. Absolutely. Really, really good metaphor. That's that's exactly what's happening.
0: So are you also saying, because I'm trying to figure folks, I, I, I am not nearly as smart as I sometimes <laughs> sound, and I'm often trying to figure things out as we're listening, but I think part of what you're saying is that when I work with an active addict, when I teach them how to reduce stress, when I teach them how to work in in healthier social relationships, when I teach them, as I say to many of my addicts, my addict, you can't work 90 hours a week anymore. That I teach them how to turn that volume down. But you're saying it doesn't go away, and that's why addiction is chronic. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I mean it's still that is your DNA, right? But if we learn how to turn the music down. As you said, you know, that's that's managing what we've got.
0: Why can't I cure it? Why can't you just, you know, I can cure a whole bunch of, well, I, I can cure a whole bunch of illnesses. And there are people who have grief and other kinds of emotional issues that we kind of can cure, if you will, and bring them to a stable state. Why can't we cure addiction?
1: Addiction is such a complex disease, a biopsychosocial disease that every every other disease that we have to deal with doesn't have the same complexities that addiction does. Um, And and for so long, we've looked at the psycho and social, but the bio part was telling somebody, for example, go exercise and that was the, the biology part of it or eat right and all those things obviously make sense as lifestyle habits. But the biology part that we look at in this triangle is someone's physiology which is measurable, and if we can identify and isolate, we then can measure and say, okay, let's look at these biochemical pathways. What can we do to support these pathways which need support?
0: And does that include medications as well as uh, activity or behavior?
1: Sure. It can be nutraceuticals. It can be pharmaceuticals. It can be Mm -hmm. a combination of both, and then obviously employing all of the lifestyle choices that we can use in our life is so useful.
0: It's interesting to me that um, when I think about addictions, I think about naturally occurring functions for the most part that serve our evolution or our survival as a species. So we have to eat, we have to build community, we have to be sexual, we have to um, competition and, and, you know, growing ourselves physically. I mean, all of those are intended to help us carry on the next generation. And so they're pleasurable for a reason. Mm -hmm. But It seems like these natural occurring functions run off the rails into something they were never intended to be when addiction takes place. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what is the difference between someone who eats in a healthy way, they they might go to the casino once a year, they look at porn occasionally, and it doesn't seem to be a problem for them, and then other people for whom those same experiences just become completely out of control.
1: Sure. So um, what we look at in the biomarkers, our panel looks at 85 different biomarkers, starting what, with-
0: I'm sorry, what is a biomarker? I, I don't mean to be simplistic, but I have no idea.
1: Sure. So, so a biomarker would be a um, just like when you have a, a complete blood count, a CBC, you go for your yearly exam. They say, let's see how many red blood cells, how many white mm-hmm. blood cells. These are the data points of what make up our body. Okay, So we look at things like neurotransmitters, brain chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. We look at hormones from stress hormone of cortisol to our androgens, our sex hormones. Then we look at what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. And this is where we see if there's any errors in genetic coding. So that's a SNP. That simply means an error in coding.
0: And does that mean that, for example, if I have ms that that might be an error in coding related to the how my physiology will play out right. but there are also errors in coding if you will uh, that have to do with behavior
1: correct correct
0: why can't we fix them why can't we crisp them or whatever the, whatever that is right now
1: well that i i couldn't answer that doc um maybe maybe down the road that will be possible but but what's possible now is actually measuring them because that wasn't even you know, that, that's a recent history. The technology to look at the SNPs that we look at only became available in 2015. Wow. Some of the particular genes that we look at, the autophagy gene, which is like the garbage man of your cells, eats the garbage and gets rid of it because that can't all hang out in your body, right? How that's involved was um, a, a Japanese physician won the Nobel Prize in 2017. Hmm. So we're looking at things that are really new down the road that might be possible. But right now we can identify, isolate, measure, and then look at those pathways and say, how do we support them?
0: So can you in real time in that way say, oh, yeah, that person is an addict and that person isn't
1: propensity towards we'd say, you know, this is this is within your genetic makeup. So, you know, there's perfect world to me would be talking to young people and saying, you know, your buddies are going to come at you now with some great ideas. And they're going to say, this is what we're going to do after school today. And and for some of them, the next day, they don't want any part of it. But for you, you're like, oh, right. I'm in. let's do it again today. I'm in, you know. And that's where this power lies. in knowing that before the game, we all still have free will. In the end, we can choose however we want to run with it. Thank but, you
0: for saying that.
1: Sure, sure.
0: Because I hear um, a lot of You know, well, this is just how this is just how I am or it's someone else's fault if they didn't act this way, if they didn't act that way. And Mm -hmm. I think it always comes back to we do make choices. Sure. And if I'm under a stressor, I can do all kinds of things to deal with that stressor. But the desire to drink or use or porn or whatever that is, that's up to me. Right. How to manage that stressor, and that's a part of the therapy work: is to help people learn what those stressors are and how to change them and not lead them back to addiction.
1: Sure, and and like I said earlier, kind of alluded to when when you know that's already there, that's that's a possibility for you. You learn what your stressors are. And then you already have, okay, if I start thinking this way or having that, what am I going to do? What's my get out of jail card? How am I going to play this out? Right. And if you have those things ready, it's a lot easier to move forward. But if you're stumped every time, like, I don't know what to do now. Let me just roll with it and I'll figure it out tomorrow. You know, there's, there's a, to me, there's a lot of power in having your game plan ready.
0: Right. And that's a lot of what treatment is in a way, is saying when you find yourself in this situation, but I, I guess, you know, do this, do that. But one of the things that seems to be, uh, I, I cannot beat into people's brains how to act differently in a, in a native way. Mm-hmm. In other words, a healthy person might say, oh, I don't want another drink, or, you know, that's all I can gamble, or, you know, I'm overeating a little bit tonight. A healthy person recognizes that, but, but addicts don't recognize that. They just keep going. Um, What is the difference between these two people?
1: So in the work that we do, we would say that it's the physiology. If you have a less than optimal and in too much of, let's um, just use an example of glutamate. It's the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. So that's the guy that says, okay, there's a lion coming after me. I need to kick in. Mm -hmm. Adrenaline. They run, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have too little, Clinically, the clinical correlation of that is things like anxiousness, a low mood, even an activated immune system. If we have too much, the clinical correlation is fatigue and and even a learning difficulty. So it's that homeostasis, right? That balance that we're always trying to live in. Our cells want to live in that too, just as much as we want to live it on the outside.
0: So we long for health, really. And again, we always say put in the right circumstances, people will lean toward healing. Mm And I have now. I have a really tough question for you. But you're the person to ask all the tough questions, by the way. I really appreciate that. Not that you have to know the answers, but at least you are the right person. I constantly hear, "I don't understand why I have a problem with sex. Why don't I have a problem with gaming? Why don't I have a problem with gambling? Why don't I have a? Why is it this thing that I seem to be so obsessed with? Or for the gambler, why is it gambling? And I think people often want to know why have I ended up with this particular set of addictions or that? I have a feeling we may or may not have answers to that.
1: So, I mean, I, I would say in from the work that I've done and experience that go back to it's a biopsychosocial disease. And can
0: you explain that? Because I'm not sure everyone understands that that means.
1: Well, well, there's a biological component to the addiction. There is a uh, sociological component to the addiction. What society does, how you feel about the society that you live in and uh, psychological component to that. And I would imagine a lot of the work that you do is looking at people's psychology from birth on up and where they found their stumbling blocks. So that that triangle all coming together, the physiology part is what we look at. So we could identify that someone is going to um, have more of a glass half empty instead of have a full look at life and say, okay. And they'll be like, you know what? I always do see life that way. You know, we can see that someone is going to be reaching outside of themselves for something. Can we identify whether it be alcohol or sex or gambling? No, but that would come back to that psychological and sociological part of your breeding through your life, where you found your happy place, where you found that pacifier for yourself where that soothing came in for you, and you're going to gravitate towards that place.
0: One of the things I hear, Dr. Higgins, of working with addiction is, I can't help myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to stop. I've been to, three I've been to three 12-step programs. I've been to two treatment centers. I've been to, and I just can't, I cannot find a way to do it differently. They get very hopeless. They really end up hating themselves and they really want to find a way out. But some people, we almost say sometimes, well, they're, not, they're just one of those who's not going to make it. Um, how do you look at that piece?
1: So we, we do have a lot of people come to us that use the term white knuckling. I've been white knuckling it, right? You're going to your meetings. You are, you know, you, you are doing everything you can just to keep on going, but it is a battle. And what we found, it's because that physiological part has never been addressed. So or do you
0: mean depression or anxiety? So you mean under the stuff underneath yeah, the, the
1: iceberg, right? The underlying uh-huh. physiology has never been um, addressed correctly. I mean, I even see people where they've been on an SSRI for decades. Which, first off, they've never been. You made. mean like
0: Prozac or or one of those kinds of drugs? Uh huh.
1: Yeah, yeah, an antidepressant. Which are, there's there's a, a lot of them, right? And they've been on them for ten years, for twenty years. And when we do lab work, we still see that their serotonin is in the tank. So that wasn't a drug that was ever going to be effective Mm. for them. And that's one of the panels that we do as well, a pharmacogenomic, meaning we're looking at that individual's DNA and what medications are going to be useful, are going to be harmful, are going to be best used for that individual. Um, There's also one of the that word again that SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms meaning an error in the genetic code <laughs> right there's a there's a specific gene that looks at and tells us that ssris probably the antidepressants are not going to be effective with this person mm. which so, is
0: really great now because we I'm sorry interrupting you we're now able to see this medication might help with this person but that might which is completely new
1: correct and and when you know, someone's been on, let's say, one of these for 10, 20 years or changed a half a dozen. That's the typical. Let's let's half it. Let's Mm -hmm. double it. Let's try a new one. We're at the point where we shouldn't be try shouldn't always be the word that we use. It should be here is the precision. We've got this. We've got this science that now can can show us this. And so often someone starts to believe that it's them and they just don't want help. So you kind of take what's already going on and exacerbate that by, I'm really, I'm my own problem. When it's that we haven't figured out what's the best for you from the, the biological, physiological aspect.
0: But there's a reason for this. And it, part of it is cultural, right? Because we live in a culture of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you can figure this out. And, and, and also one that has separated the body from our behavior, from separated the body from who we are in the world for such a long time that, and I really, I grew up in a world where your brain had nothing to do with the rest of you. I mean, or there was just no relationship there. So it seems like you're kind of swimming upstream, like you're not intellectually or in the academic world, but in the day-to-day world, you're still swimming upstream.
1: Absolutely. And, And that's a great point. We did, we had all of this separated. Our body, our mind, our spirit, we're all separate things. When in fact, they're all part of us. Mm-hmm. Right. And and going back to that word I used earlier, that balance or that homeostasis, all the parts of us want to be in that balance. They want to be in that homeostasis. And in the the like you said, in this country, how we we deal with it is that it's a moral flaw for an individual. It's not. It's not.
0: Well, We don't see that cancer is a moral flaw or diabetes is a moral flaw, but I really don't think we have found a way to turn the corner in helping people understand even depression. Mm-hmm. Once you get out of bed, once you get to work, you know, if you just exercise more, you'll feel better. Right. We, we don't really have a way to carry the message, if you will, to most folks, because there's such an entrenched belief right. about behavior versus...
1: In my TED talk, I, I say exactly that, that, you know, it's not a moral flaw and If someone has diabetes, we don't say to them, why are you so weak? But somehow for someone with an addiction, with a mental health condition, it's okay to say that to them. Just pull yourself up. Come on. What are you being so weak for? Get with the program. Let's go.
0: Well, I don't have, I have, I went to a strip club when I was 19, or I went off to the bachelor party with a bunch of guys when I was 28. I don't have that problem. You know, I have a glass of wine and I wonder if that contributes to contributes also is that I'm looking at something and I do. It isn't a problem. I look at you and you, it is a problem. And I think, well, if I can do it, why can't you? Sure. And that's because they don't understand what's that. We're different people. Neurobiologically, we are different people. And what drives you may not drive me.
1: Exactly. It's ignorance, you know, and that's not meant to be mean to anybody, but it's ignorance in the neurobiology and how we're all wired and how we work
0: so how do you translate what you're doing into common language and what i mean by that is understanding because i think you understand as much as we can how this fits together and i have a feeling things are going to grow exponentially in the next decade with some of the work that we're able to do we're at the earliest stages but you did a ted talk for example i don't think that you spoke in very particularly sophisticated terms you were talking to a general audience how do we move people from uh from how they think about this to understanding the biological because people say that's an excuse you know well what happened to you in the past that's just an excuse or your brain doesn't work right that's just an excuse because again they're looking at pull yourself by the bootstraps i didn't do this why do you how do we begin to shift re- you know we've had a disease model for addiction forever but nobody really sees it a disease they see it as willful right. how do we use your knowledge and maybe i'm being optimistic to begin to shift the tide Because people hate the addict, you know, how could they do this? And I'm in a relationship with them. How could they do this to me? Or how could they do this to our family? Or, you know, it becomes such a personal issue, a deterministic issue. How do we begin to get this across? And maybe things like this, I don't know.
1: Right, right. So all of our experience in life have the opportunity to change our wiring, right? So like I said earlier, we're born with our DNA. Here's your cards, play them out. But now knowing that epigenetics changes the expression of our genes, we can become very aware that, wow, okay, I never saw this behavior in myself or in a loved one. I've got to have underlying genes that have been turned on or turned off. Let me figure out what's happened. Because again, if we go back to isolate and measuring, it's then treatable let's look at this. To me, this should be just as simple. You go and you get a CBC every year, a complete blood count. Let's see if your white blood cells are where they need to be. Your red blood cells are where they need to be. This should be in in the mental health arena, just as usable for the general public.
0: But now you're talking about cures, right? You're talking about if we put your neurochemistry in balance, you don't need to go to support groups. You don't need to uh, create accountability. You don't need to do all of that sort of work of recovery that people are doing now. Are you really saying that it, that you can reduce the desire and the symptom to a degree that they don't have to continue working on it other than watching stress and all that?
1: I, I think most people would still need to figure out whatever kind of support it is that they need every day. Like let's just use an, an example of cancer. Someone is in remission Does it mean that they had lung cancer, they're in remission, does it mean that they should start smoking again? Right, so it's, this is there, we are in a good place with it, we're in remission with it, I'll use the same analogy, but it doesn't mean that we just say, oh, let's just do whatever we want. We still want to be careful with what we do and and respect our body and our minds and our spirits. You know, it's all part of us.
0: What do you say to the family members And I know that this is not fully your arena, but, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a family member, and it becomes, you know, really so personal. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? Especially in sex addiction. You know, if you loved me, how could you, how could you do this to me? And it's a long way from saying from that to saying, well, this person has a biological problem. And if you just, they don't care, they're furious, they're angry, they're hurt and that also drives some of the stigma which is this person if they cared about me or they cared about their job or their children or how do we help the partners and families come to peace with that part i mean it is personal but sure. but diabetes isn't personal you know cancer isn't personal but behavior is sure how do we help the families understand i mean they're not going to understand i don't care what you say you did this to me Mm -hmm. How do we, is there anything you would recommend to me? Because I run into this a lot that I can say to families, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I know this is personal for you, but try this. Is there there something they can read, for example?
1: Um, Sure. There's uh, the most non-complicated. I might have to send that to you, Doc, and and send you reading material because I want to think about what would be most consumable for the average person. but. You know, when we go over lab results with people, a lot of times they start crying. Mm. And that uh, uh, to me, as much as there's hurt in the the partner of someone with a sex addiction, let's say, I would believe the first part to healing is understanding that there is a physiological part to this.
0: And that moves me from being a bad person to being a broken person.
1: Being a broken person. And there are clinical correlations to every single thing that we look at. So this adds up and it makes sense. Does it make it go away? No. But to me, that would be the first step in someone understanding that this is a disease and this is our starting place. It doesn't mean everything's going to be great from here, but understanding what our starting place is would be helpful.
0: One of the issues that we do primary work with at Seeking Integrity is crossed or co-occurring addictions. Mm -hmm. So I'll often work with someone who has an opioid addiction and... They like to go unconscious when they're sexual, or someone has a meth problem and they get hypersexual related to the meth, and they seem to be intertwined. In other words, someone goes to drug treatment, but unless we deal with the sexual part, they're going to end up back with the drugs. Or, you know, there seems to be a a mutual triggers and all that. How do you look at again? It's sort of the whack a mole thing, but how do you look at addictions that have become fused together? How do you pull that part apart?
1: Sure. Um, What we see is almost everybody has a co-occurring you know it's it's what's that underlying is there anxiety there and this is pacifying is there depression there and this is uplifting is you know it it, looking at all of those different um, elements is integral to any type of success
0: and when you mean elements can you looking at all of the, you mean the, the co-occurring, the other drugs, the depression, right. the all of that.
1: Right, right, right.
0: You know, the addiction field has been particularly focused on 12 steps, on groups, on support. There's been a traditional sort of fear or, or concern about medical intervention whatsoever. And as you may know, you know, part of the history is that we discovered Valium. And it's like, oh, this will fix Alcoholism, we'll just give them Valium, and of course Valium creates addiction. And oh, they're just not sleeping. We give them so there's a great fear, I think, in the addiction community or across the board that they're just medicating the problem, but they're just moving from one drug to another, or one problem to another. How do you or even you're addicted to 12 step programs? You know, I've heard that before. So how do we how do we do that? How do we work with that? How do you think about that?
1: I think that's a great valid point. Um, we have we, being in the medical community, have created a lot of that by, here, here's a prescription for sleeping, here's a prescription for your anxiety, mm-hmm. rather, than, rather than doing actual lab tests to find out which, <laughs> what analytes we're talking about. Um, You know, it's if I went to you as a doctor and my vocabulary is different than yours, we may not come up with the same thing that I'm feeling or experiencing. Right. So here we are in 2023. We're still diagnosing and treating based on vocabulary when we have the opportunity to add some biomarkers, which create objective data to the whole picture. And To me, that's necessary.
0: So, how do you get this into the hands of people? Um, You know, when I just think about some of the new medications that come out for various issues, there's you know thousands of dollars for a course of them. And and by the way, many many people who listen to you listen to this, they'll never get to therapy. They'll never be in a position. You know, I'm fairly knowledgeable, and I don't think I could be able to reach out to someone like you and get the information I need. So across the board, I mean, do you think these 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 experiences and this knowledge is going to be available to the average person.
1: That's a great question. My
0: <laughs> we don't maybe those are your questions we don't have answers to. But you know, uh, but I'll put it back on you, which is you know, uh, for example, I have great insurance, but I don't think it's going to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I do? you Are we going to get to a point where we can make use of this? I know in cancer. Working with DNA and understanding the different kinds of cancer will help them treat the cancer. Um, and that has become, uh, when a woman has breast cancer, I think more meaningful. What kind of breast cancer? What is the genetic makeup of that? But, but that seems to be life-saving. And this, behavioral.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and that's been the inequity. Because those should be the same. And there has been and there still is an inequity within healthcare. care. Um, fortunately, I think we will move in that direction. We had one of the largest providers um, reach out to us last week asking to do a pilot program because they want to show their insurance company that this will be effective and that it will actually save money in the long run it's always about the money right that would actually save money in the long run so those kind of things and they came to us so those kind of things that are starting to happen say that there is an uphill but i could see it happening i can see it happening and there is an inequity, an inequity which is is incomprehensible At this point in time, to separate the ability for someone to get treatment or not based on is it behavioral or not? To you. Yes. And even though we've had the parity bill.
0: Right. We've had that. Can you explain? I've never seen that actually play out.
1: The federal health care parity bill. Um, mm-hmm. that said Kennedy. Wait, Kennedy. Yeah, Patrick Kennedy. And, and no. actually I had the opportunity when I was in Abu Dhabi to talk to him about it. He was one of the speakers. And interestingly enough, he said that he was a he was a freshman congressman at the time. They they bamboozled him into the bill because none of the, the guys that wanted to stick around DC wanted their names on this. Because because it had to do with mental health. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So it's not just, and I'm going to, we're going to end in a moment. I don't want to keep you, but we're not just talking about the stigma or the the challenges and financial issues, the cultural issues about the inability for some people to pay or not. We're also talking about mental health and addiction as being separated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this idea that I can, I can choose it. I can do it differently. I can, we're still in that place um, where the mental health, the addiction pieces just are simply not considered. in the same way. And that is what you're trying to do is help people understand. You can see this, you can understand it biologically, you can note it. And it isn't just an expression of someone's moral beliefs or who they are. Um, And it's treatable. Right. So what, what do you want? What would be helpful? Do you think? And again, speaking of inequity, my goal is always for people who listen to learn as much as they can, whether they ever get help or not in a direct way. What can people do is it lifestyle changes? Is it how can your work be effective in in helping people now?
1: So you know, the obvious would be to run a lab panel to see what your starting point is, right? So if we know your starting point, we then can say, okay, here's what we need to do to support these pathways that are less than optimal. Um, that that's the the sweet spot. That's the perfect place. Um understanding that these are all measurable, I think is really important. And if it's measurable, then it's treatable. Um and this is a starting place. It goes beyond just a vocabulary word for creating a diagnosis, but it goes to objective information. And that's and in the
0: world you're looking at or that you live in, are you mostly focusing on drugs and alcohol?
1: Um, it's it varies. Probably the the greatest um, proportion is in drugs and alcohol, but there's also the process addictions and know, um, yeah, Interestingly enough, talking to a gentleman earlier today, and pornography was why he called us. And I asked about any other addictions in the family. Mom uh, mom had a a pornography addiction. Dad yeah. alcoholic grandfather, alcoholic, brother, drug. Um, so there was so much here. This was his way of dealing with what was going on within that.
0: It's interesting you say that because it's it it's so striking to me that I work with men who will say, well, my dad was having affairs and my dad was looking at porn all the time. And I think, you know, I, I'm so trained to think of that as a psychological mm-hmm. function, but you're saying it's more, it's more, so maybe the sex piece does, is more identifiable versus a gambling piece. We're just not there yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: What would you like folks to know about how how where we're coming to with this, what your work is about, and then I well actually and how they can reach you and what that would what they could gain from that experience reaching out to you.
1: Um what I'd like people to know is that I think it's a very exciting time and I hope that they do too and feel perhaps empowered by the information that is becoming available today and that it's employable and it can really change the outcome of someone's life. Um, To me, that's exciting. And anywhere you can offer hope to someone is a really, really powerful tool. Um, We can be reached at our our website is wiredforaddiction.com. We work with individuals, we work with people in treatment centers, we work with people that are incarcerated. Um we're National Association of Criminal Defense lawyers we work with. so so there's a lot of different categories of people that we work with and help. but um, just to know that there are there is a tool available, there is more to come as we continue to learn more in science and employ what we've got to use to help.
0: How can they find your TED Talk?
1: Um, you go to YouTube, Evelyn Higgins, and Biology of Addiction, and it's a really TED Talk, seven minutes long, but kind of as simple as possible, as short as possible. I use one science word <laughs> <laughs> because I want to make it understandable to right. as many people as possible, but that that's a difficult thing to take some heavy-duty science and not use science words to bring it all together. But That's a great starting place for people, and I think it can offer a lot of hope.
0: You know, I want to say before we stop that you and I are well-matched. I remember when I went to graduate school and they said, people are falling in the stream and they're drowning. And Mm -hmm. there are some people who are pulling one person out at a time trying to save their lives. And then there are other people who are upstream trying to figure out why people keep falling in. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm at one end and you're at the other, but we're both achieving the same goal. So what an opportunity to speak to you. I feel really honored. And I hope that um, I can read some of the things you've written and that I, I can actually get, um, be intelligent enough to grasp onto them. Um, um, so thank you for, oh, oh, I do have one more question. Are you working with families?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And h- what is that about? Just real quick. Cause a lot of family members are listening. How do you, how does that relate at all to the brain of a, an addict?
1: Okay, so in different ways, one um, where, Someone will maybe has watched a TED talk or has heard on other podcasts and says, you know what, we used to talk about Uncle Bill, grandma on mom's side, you know, and this was this was the family conversation.
0: Or we didn't talk about it.
1: Or we didn't. Right. But but even as a little kid, I remember saying, wow, that's not right. You know, And, and, and you were supposed to figure it out yourself. So people hear this and then they say, you know what, I would just even like just the lab panel just to see where I'm at. And then other ways we work with families is there's the individual and then we bring the family in to hear everything that's going on and what we're doing and what the plan of action is and how, hope that this can help them as well in becoming understandable
0: and coming to peace. If I didn't marry the wrong person. I don't I didn't cause my kids to have this and all of that blame that goes to families exactly. can be all that stigma can be reduced. Sure. You're my hero for um, sure. And I'm going to watch and read everything you've done. And I hope you'll come back and talk more because it's a gift to have you around. Thank you, Dr. Higgins.
1: Thank you, Dr. Weiss.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.